0: Job's three friends heard about his calamity. They came to bring him comfort. That was their goal. They were well-known men. They were men who were of high repute in their various areas. They collaborated together. They came to minister to their friend and came to speak words of encouragement to him. And uh, Job's life, as you know, was in a shambles. He was a strong, wealthy man, a blessed man, a wise man. But his life had turned into a shambles, and he's pictured sitting on the ash heap outside the city, the garbage dump. uh, Basically, he is scraping his uh, boils with a piece of broken pottery, which would be out in this area, and his life is just a total disaster. His friends, when they see him from afar off, they barely recognize him, and all they can do is cry. All they can do is weep over the disaster that has come upon him. And for seven days, they don't say anything, not a word is spoken, as they just sit there and try to deal with the calamity in Job's life. Lots of questions, lots of ways that we would wonder, how do we bring someone uh, comfort at a time like this? What do we say? Well, Job was the first one to break the silence, and Job went into what we might call a sad soliloquy. He wasn't necessarily praying to God. He wasn't necessarily talking to his friends. But he began to curse the day that he was born. In fact, he went in and he said, I curse the night of my conception when, when it was announced that a baby boy has been conceived or even the day of my birth. I wish, and he's just speaking maybe into the air or to himself as it were, I wish that day were stricken from the calendar. That's how bad his life had gotten. I wish I never would have been born. Now, he had gone from definitely a man of high stature to the lowest that you can go, to where now you reflect on your life and you say, I wish I never would have come into existence. It would have been better had I never even lived. Well, his friends hear that sad speech that Job gives, and a response is finally given. The first words we have from the friends who came to comfort the response is given by one called Eliphaz the Temanite. This is uh, Job chapter 4 verse 1. It says, Then Eliphaz the Temanite answered. We looked a little bit at Eliphaz. He's from an area called Timon. It was known for its wisdom And if he was one of the pillars in this particular culture, he may have been one of, like, the elders of this area. So he would have been a man sought after for wisdom. He wasn't just a normal friend, an ordinary Joe, as it were. He was probably a leader of leaders, maybe sought out for his counsel. And so he's the first to open his mouth. He's the first one introduced. So Bible scholars would say that being the first introduced, he's the oldest and he's the first to speak, and he is the one that the Lord in Job 42 actually calls to answer for all the friends at the end of the book. So Eliphaz has a very, uh, you could call it a position of priority. He seems to be the elder statesman of the group, and he answers. What what does he answer? Well, he answers Job's sad soliloquy. You know, he's down in the dumps and uh, all that he said we studied last week. Eliphaz's name, ironically, means God is victory. It can also mean God is fine gold. And he came with a goal, like the others, you can mark chapter 2, verse 11, to comfort Job, to bring comfort, to empathize with him, and to bring comfort. But after someone curses the day of their birth, the night of their conception, wishes that their existence had been stricken from the calendar of the world, <laughs> how do you respond? to such a thing like that. Who's the first one that's going to say something? Would you have a little bit of fear and trepidation? Sometimes in situations where you're trying to minister to somebody who's been through something so tragic and so terrible, you don't know what to say, and sometimes you wonder if you should say something, but you're even afraid if you don't say something and you feel like you can kind of be you know, in between a rock and a hard place. I think that's where Eliphaz probably was. Maybe the other friends were looking to him to say something since he was the older one and perhaps was known for the most wisdom. And so here he is, and he says these words. He says, If one ventures a word with you, Job 4.2, will you become impatient? But who can refrain from speaking? Now, he sets the table, and I'm going to tell you that Eliphaz in Job chapters 4 and 5, his first speech recorded here, there's a cycle of three different speeches that we're going to see and responses by Job, and it goes back and forth for a while. But Eliphaz is going to start off, and he's going to say some good things. And I called this Eliphaz's encouragement with a question mark because some of the things that he says you're going to want to take away as good and positive advice, And some things that he says are not so good, and they're not necessarily what we would want to do. Because a lot of what these guys are going to try to accomplish is not only are they going to try to comfort and empathize with Job, but they're going to try to answer the why question. And you know, with us humans, trying to answer the why question is dangerous territory. It often is. Sometimes the why question is easily answered. You took out the revolver, shot yourself in the foot. There's the evidence right there. We don't have to ask any more questions, right? You shot yourself in the foot, okay? That's obvious. I'm speaking metaphorically, but hopefully that's never happened to any of you. But in other cases, when something goes wrong, what's our tendency as human beings? Let's face it. In the church, outside the church, we normally ask the question, I wonder what this person did that brought this calamity on them. If, if not saying it openly, sometimes we think it, let's face it. And this was the theology that was around all the way back to this time, all the way through the time of the apostles of Jesus. People thought that if a calamity came on your life, it's because you had done something wrong. But what, we ha- what have we learned about Job? He was blameless, he was upright. In fact, God is the one who brags on Job. Consider my servant. Hear that. That's my servant Job. There's nobody like him. On the whole earth, he's blameless, upright, fearing God and turning away from evil. God says that of Job. So what do you do with that now that you know that Job hasn't really obviously done anything wrong? Yes, he's a sinner. Because 1 Kings 8.46 and other verses say there is no man, there is no woman who does not sin. All of us sin. We've all sinned and we all what? We all fall short of the glory of God. But Job was a good man. He was a consistent man. He was a solid man. He was pleasing in the eyes of God and of man. Which shows you something, brothers and sisters, just to consider tonight. That it is possible for you and for me to be pleasing in the sight of God. Not to be perfect, but to be pleasing. And there's a difference. Your life as a Christian is not going to ever be about perfection. If that's your mark, you ain't going to hit it. But it can be about direction. Your life can be about improving and growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Your life should always be about an upward trajectory where you grow and mature in your walk with Christ. You never stop growing. You never stop maturing. You have never arrived. I don't care how many Bible studies you've been to, how many sermons you've listened to, how much you've studied the scriptures, you've studied apologetics. You fill in the blank. We're all going to be maturing. And the way that you mature, simply put, is you get closer to God, and you mature. It's that simple. You pursue a relationship with God with all that that means, and you're gonna grow, and you're gonna mature, and you're gonna become more like him. And so, he says, this is a wise way to start. After someone's in a bummer place, verse two, uh, you might ask something like this. "If, If I say something to you, are you going to get really upset with me <laughs> that's that's a loose paraphrase right sometimes in relationships we have to determine the right time to talk to a person okay communication is about verbal and nonverbals but put this in your pocket it's also about timing and after job goes off and curses the day that he was conceived and the day he was born and wants it off the calendar. You know, I mean, it's not easy to jump in and say, okay, uh, <laughs> let me, can I talk now? Where do you start? And so I think it's, there's wisdom here in saying to someone, hey, can I talk to you? Sometimes when I talk to couples about um, good, healthy communication, I say to them, you know, one of the ways that you can practice good, healthy communication is to ask your spouse or your significant other, someone that you're courting or dating, you might say to them, hey, can, can we talk? Would it be okay uh, if we talked right now? Are you gonna kill me? <laughs> you, you, might, you might put it that way. Like, are you really mad right now? Would there be a better time to talk about this? Could we talk in an hour? Could we talk over a cup of coffee? Could we talk, could we go get a frozen yogurt and talk? I think it's good to ask and say, are you ready to talk? Because sometimes people just simply aren't ready. They're not ready to talk. They're not ready to listen. So this is wisdom. And this was a wise man, Eliphaz. And he says, if one ventures a word with you, will you become impatient? Will you become annoyed? But who can refrain from speaking? Look, I've got to say something to you, but I want to know, first and foremost, are you okay if I speak? It's a good question. Can I speak to your situation if I do Will you become impatient? If someone speaks to you, are you going to become impatient? Do the people around you expect you to be a good listener or to be annoyed? Do the people closest to you think that when they speak to you, they're going to actually have your ear and your heart? Or, or have they already concluded from past history that you're not going to listen or you're going to easily become ir- irritated with them? Something to ponder. So these words have the implication of are you going to become impatient? Are you going to become irritated? Are you going to become offended? Are you going to get fed up before I even start? Sometimes when people are trying to communicate with us, if we're in a pattern, if we're in a negative dance with someone where we can't communicate well, their expectation is that we're not going to listen. And maybe our expectation is that we don't want to hear what they have to say anyway because we've already closed our heart to that person. And so this is a good way to maybe open up the heart. Eliphaz is essentially asking for permission. He's saying, look, I want to talk to you. Do you mind if I say something? If I... Chime in my two cents. Something I put in my notes. We want to be patient listeners, open to others, input and point of view. Even if we disagree. Like in evangelism, you know, we, we need to hear the other person out before we want to get, you know, to the gospel. We want to get to it, but we got to be wise, right? Eliphaz and Job's other friends needed to be careful with Job because he obviously was very fragile. Now, we've been talking about some lessons like if you go and you have to minister to someone in a broken situation and you don't quite know how to deal with it, fragile is better than the other way, right? Being careful and prayerful and fragile with a person who's in pain is wise. So I think Eliphaz has decided it's gone on long enough. We've been silent long enough. Job has basically you know, poured out his heart in a dark soliloquy. And he starts off with some encouragement. And if you're taking notes, I would encourage you to always start out with encouragement, especially if someone is fragile. Look at verses 3 and 4. He says, Behold, Eliphaz speaking to Job, you have admonished, yet sir, in uh, Hebrew, you've instructed, ESV, you've encouraged, uh, new living translation, many. You have admonished, New American Standard, many people. You have strengthened weak hands. Now, Eliphaz is starting off speaking to Job about what he's done for others in the past. Your words, look at four, have helped the tottering to stand. You have strengthened feeble or faltering NIV knees. One translation has this. You have braced those with shaking knees. There are four things for which Eliphaz commends Job. They're kind of parallel statements. You could call them 3A and 4A and 3B and 4B. Notice in 3A and 4A, you have admonished or encouraged many, and then link that with 4A, your words have helped the tottering to stand. You might want to draw an arrow or just see a link between 3A and 4A, because your words can encourage and instruct people, and they can help the tottering to stand. You can speak a due word in season, an encouraging word. Uh, on Sunday, we talked about that we, our goal should be to edify other people. And the word edify comes from the idea of an edifice or a building. And we are to try our best by God's Spirit to build others up instead of what? Instead of tearing them down. Now, there are some things that, that are going to be neutral in our speech, you know, They're not going to necessarily build up or tear down, you know, where do you want to go get something to eat? There's some neutral stuff. But generally speaking, if you think about what your target is, your target should always be edification as best you can. Sometimes edifying somebody is also challenging them to get better, to go higher. So it's not always just, you know, i got to stick with only positive things. You can can be an encourager by challenging others as well. Eliphaz says to Job, you've done this for many people. You've instructed many people. Your words have helped the tottering to stand. Look at uh, second part of verses 3 and 4. Call it 3B and 4B. Uh, You have strengthened weak hands, and then go down to 4B. You have strengthened feeble or faltering knees. You have braced those with shaking knees. This is uh, from some commentaries. It says, that is, to those who were suffering, Job had a pattern. This reveals more about how good of a man he was. Who were suffering, Job would give insight. Here's what one writer says of the Hebrew language. Into God's disciplinary use of affliction. Job's teaching enabled people to overcome their affliction. Weak hands and feeble knees are pictures of fear, depression, enervation, which means being drained of vitality, loss of morale, being tired all the time, as doctors might call it. These are people who Job instructed that were failing under the weight of their own sin or life's difficulties or both. Job had a pattern in his life known to his friends and I'm sure many others of instructing people who were in the ash heap of their own situations, created oftentimes by their own sin. And he would strengthen them. And he would teach them about God's disciplinary hand. And he would say, you can make it. You can get better. There's a path of healing, and here's what it looks like. Job was almost uh, someone who was in recovery ministry. (laughs) He was a man who would say to other people, maybe he would open up his home or his estate, and he would say, you could get better here. You could get well here. This, this is, this is uh, something about God that you need to know. He even disciplines the one in whom he delights. The son that he loves, he will discipline you so that you will improve, that you will yield the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Hang on, hang in there. That was Job. And that's something that the church should be doing. In fact, when we bear one another's burdens, we fulfill the law Christ, which is the law of love. Would you hold your place in Job and turn over to Galatians chapter 6? Let me show you this because I think this will be an encouragement to you uh, in terms of your own ministry and an encouragement to those of you who need this type of ministry in your direction. Here's what it says, Galatians 6, look at verse 1. Brethren, Paul's writing to the church, brethren, even if anyone is caught, 6-1 of Galatians, in any trespass, they've sinned, they've transgressed, You who are spiritual, you're walking with the Lord, restore such a one, have a restoration ministry, in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ, which is the law of love. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But each one must examine his own work, and then he will have reason for boasting in regard to himself alone and not in regard to another. Bear one another's burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ. Look, it it is hard when people are going through a trial to enter into their pain. Amen? It's exhausting. It's difficult. It's hard. Because the, listen to the language. When you bear someone else's burden, you are stepping in and carrying the weight with them. There was an American missionary, and he was in China. And he was watching little kids playing games in the street. And he noticed that there was a Chinese boy, and there were, I, there were others, as I recall the story, who had his little brother on his shoulders while he was playing the games. And the American missionary said to the little Chinese boy, isn't that... Hard to carry that extra load playing these games and doing what you do with your brother on your back? And he responded, sir, he's not heavy. <laughs> he's my brother. <laughs> well, the American missionary came home, and he got a new view of his own ministry. And he said to his family when he returned to the States, if a little Chinese boy can carry his little brother around while playing games in the street and say to me, a missionary, he's not heavy, he's my brother, then why can't I do that for other believers? Now, the truth is that sometimes we get tired and life gets hard and ministry can be taxing and difficult. But that's where we need to understand that Jesus entered our pain. He bore our burdens. And that's why we fulfill the law of Christ when we do the same for others, Because essentially, we're doing for others what Christ did for us. You see, if you want a picture of the gospel, brethren, that is a great picture of the gospel. When you bear someone else's burdens, you're essentially living out the gospel, and it becomes a testimony to others who watch what you're doing. Turn back to the book of Job in rapid fire, some verses for you. Cast all your cares upon God because he cares for you. 1 Peter 5, 7. Psalm 55, says, Cast your burden upon the Lord, and he will sustain you. Psalm 68, 19 says, Blessed be the Lord who daily bears our burden, the God, is, the God who is our salvation, selah. Life can't get heavy. It can't get difficult. I heard a story of a Norfolk Southern train that was rolling down the rails of Indiana, 24 miles per hour. Suddenly, the conductor, Robert Moore, spotted an object on the tracks roughly a city block away. Initially, the engineer, Rod Lindsay, thought it was a dog on the tracks. Then Moore screamed, That's a baby! That's a baby! The baby was 19-month-old Emily Marshall, who had wandered away from her home while her mother was planting flowers in the front yard. Lindley hit the brakes of the train. Moore bolted out of the door and raced along the ledge to the front of the engine. He realized there was no time to jump ahead of the train and grab the baby, so he ran down the set of steps, squatted at the bottom of the grill, and hung on. As the train drew close to Emily, she rolled off the rail onto the roadbed, but she was still in danger of being hit by the train. So Moore stretched out his leg, pushed her out of harm's way. Moore then jumped off the train, picked up the little girl, cradled her in his arms, Little Emily ended up with just a cut on her head and a swollen lip. What's the story's purpose? Sometimes we're in danger. and Sometimes the Lord has to give us a gentle kick to move us off the train tracks <laughs> to get us to safety. Job needs a gentle kick from Eliphaz because Job is in a dark place. And when our friends and family are in a dark place, sometimes we have to speak light and life into their lives, and we have to remind them of what they've told other people. <laughs> See, the truth of the matter is, and I say this with fear and trepidation from this pulpit, is that it's easy to speak into other people's problems until the problems are yours. It's easy to say to someone, okay, it's gonna be okay, you can quote your, your favorite Bible verse or whatever situation until you're that person laying in that hospital bed until you're that person with a broken relationship or a difficult situation in front of you, until you're that person that's fallen to a sin that you never thought you would fall to, until the devil's got the upper hand in your life. And you're trying to make sense of what happened. And maybe you're like Job, and you're thinking, you're, you're racking your brain to try to figure out, what could I have done wrong? What did I do? And maybe there's nothing evident. Maybe there's no rhyme or reason Maybe there's no clear indication as to why. And remember, when we started the book, we realized that it had nothing to do with Job. It was something that was happening in the spiritual realm between God and Satan and for our own purposes to grow from it. And we don't, we, the why question is not really even dealt with. And so Eliphaz says to Job, all these things you, you did, but now it's come to you, five And you are impatient. And all God's people said, ouch. It touches you, and you are dismayed. Maybe Eliphaz was one of those people that Job had spoken into his life at a difficult low. And maybe Job was an encouragement and said, hold on, brother. You're going to make it. God uses these things for his purposes. Maybe Eliphaz was one of them. Or maybe Eliphaz watched Job do this with multiple people. He obviously had knowledge of it. You comforted others. You encouraged others. But now, literally, you are irritated and aghast. This is simply a gentle rebuke to take our own counsel, to swallow our own medicine, the medicine that we've given to others. We have to be careful. Jesus said in the New Testament, in the way that you judge, you will be judged. And if we can dish out You know, sometimes, let's face it, we could mean well, but sometimes we've dished out religious answers to situations that when we were in the same situation, we didn't handle real well. And that's a humbling thing to face, that, you know, I could give spiritual wisdom and insight and pray for others, but then if I'm going to act like a baby when I'm in that situation, I've got to look at myself. Maybe I have to say like the psalmist, why are you in despair, O my soul? Why are you disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I, I shall again praise him, the help of my countenance and my God. Sometimes we have to slap ourselves out of a situation, right? We have to do some healthy self-talk. What am I doing? What am I thinking? Why am I having a pity party right now? God has been good to me, amen? Sometimes the way that, that's the way that you talk yourself out of dark situations. You take it to the Lord, but you have to also talk to yourself. One writer says Job's emotion is so thick, so deep, he's in such a state of fear that it is close to panic. Uh, Folks, there are folks, and maybe you're here tonight, maybe some of you have experienced panic attacks. And a panic attack can seem like a heart attack, it can be a physical manifestation of the body to too much stress where your body can't deal with it anymore. Your brain's just unloading stress, and your body reacts with heart attack symptoms. And it's a difficult road for many people to deal with it. It's scary. And then when you find out it's, you know, if your doctor does 17 tests on you and then says something like this, have you been stressed out lately? And you're like, yeah, can you tell by my hairdo and the hair I've been pulling out, you know? Yeah, stressed, yes. Some years ago when I was a little boy, my mom and dad went through a divorce and uh, I was having these terrible headaches, like migraine kind of headaches. And so my mom was taking me to all these doctors. I was probably like five or six years old. Trying to, They were checking my eyes, they were doing brain scans and everything. And finally, when my mom got to the end of this trail, they could find nothing wrong with me. A doctor said to my mom, has this boy been through some sort of stress? And my mom said, well, yeah, I just divorced my husband and we flew from Chicago to California and he's had to deal with it all and he's a little boy, but I don't know how little boys deal with stress. And it turned out that the stress that I was feeling that I didn't know how to work through rationally, you know, four, five, six years old, um, was coming to manifest itself in physical signs. And so sometimes when I've talked to families over the years, and things have been going on, those are some questions that I've asked, and I'm able to share with people. You know what? I went through that as a little boy because my dad was gone, and I didn't even know how to make sense of what that meant. And so Eliphaz goes on. He says, six, is not your fear of God your confidence? The the fear of the Lord is what? It's the beginning of wisdom. You're going to see many wise things that uh, Eliphaz knows about. He's going to use parables and wisdom sayings and so forth. And your integrity, the integrity of your ways, your hope, you're, you're a man of, you fear the Lord and you're a man of great integrity. Isn't that your confidence? Shouldn't that be your confidence? I don't know. Because the moment I think that it's my fear of the Lord and my integrity that's going to make me right with God is the moment that I'm probably in trouble. Do you see what I'm saying? The moment that I think that I have arrived and I'm doing the right thing and you could give me the, the most humble badge, you know, or the most humble man of the year. And you give me the badge for it and I put it on. The moment I put it on, it's all over. You see, this is a sneaky thing, what Eliphaz is saying, but this is the thought of the time. If, you're, uh, if you fear the Lord, you're a religious man. You walk in integrity. You're a righteous man. That's true of Job then your life should be blessed. And there's a little implication here, but your life is not. So what's up? What's going on? As some subtlety begins to move in Eliphaz's argument. Remember now, he says, whoever perished being innocent, seven, or where were the upright destroyed? Give me one example, says Eliphaz, as he speaks to Job in his misery, of someone pious who died an untimely death. Now, I don't know where Eliphaz has been, but there's a man coming in history future to Eliphaz who will die an untimely death who was completely innocent, and his name is Jesus Christ. And Stephen was martyred all because he challenged the Jewish leadership, the Sanhedrin, and he said, you are stiff-necked. You always resist the Holy Spirit. And they rushed at him with one accord, gnashing their teeth, and stoned him with stones. Was Stephen guilty of anything? He spoke the truth, and he was killed for it. How about some of the prophets that we learn about Isaiah perhaps being sawn in half, and other uh, prophets of old who spoke the truth, and they were innocent in God's sight in in the sense that they shared the truth. How about our persecuted brethren all around the world? Who, for the right thing, doing the right thing, are persecuted and sometimes killed. And how about in our own country right now? Where it seems like, you know, it's been flipped around. And when you say something good, you're treated as if you're an evil ogre for sharing biblical truth. Well, the Apostle Paul, when they washed up on the shore. Let's turn over to the book of Acts. I'll show you one example of this. How the ancients used to think... Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts 28, the last chapter of the book of Acts. There's a shipwreck that happens, and Paul's been trying to encourage everybody. And they, they wash up on this uh, island called Malta. Uh, Acts 28, look at verse 3. And the, the natives were very kind. They showed him extraordinary kindness. They made a fire. It was cold. And the apostle Paul's there, Acts 28, 3, when Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks He laid them on the fire, and a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his or Paul's hand. And when the natives saw the creature hanging from his hand, they began saying to one another, Undoubtedly, this man is a murderer, Acts 28, 4. And though he has been saved from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. Now, this is a crazy conclusion, but this is what they believed. Justice may well be a reference to the goddess Decay. Uh, the personification of justice and revenge. All these cultures had these different views of how this worked. However, Paul shook the creature off into the fire and suffered no harm. But they, the natives, were expecting that he was about to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. Hey, watch. They are probably t- taking bets on the side. When do you think he's gonna die? When do you think he'll fall over? But after they had waited a long time, Had seen nothing unusual happen to him, they changed their minds and began to say that he was a god. (laughs) Can you imagine that? This man must have died. He did something terrible. That's why the viper fastened onto him. He throws the viper off. They watch him for a while. Is he going to swell? Is his ear swelling up? I don't know. Does he look a little funny to you? And then when time goes by, they move from he's a terrible man to he must be a god. (laughs) Wow, how fickle people can be. This is sometimes the way life works, right? We have to shake things off. Heard the story of two frogs that fell into a can of cream, or so I heard it told. The sides of the can were shiny and steep. The cream was deep and cold. Oh, what's the use, croaked frog number one? Tis fate, no helps around. Goodbye, Goodbye, my friend. Goodbye, cruel world. And weeping still, he drowned. But frog number two of sterner stuff dog paddled in surprise. Though while he wiped his creamy face and dried his creamy eyes. I'll swim a while at least, he cried, or so I've heard, he said. It really wouldn't help the world if one more frog were dead. An hour or two he kicked and swam, not once he stopped to mutter. But kicked and kicked and swam and kicked and hopped out out via butter see, sometimes instead of getting shook up, we got to shake it off. We got to keep paddling, keep moving. When God's done with you, he'll be done with you. And until then, he wants you to move forward in your faith. Back to the book of Job. So Eliphaz, what would you, how would you measure his speech so far? Would you say he, he started off pretty decent, right? He was encouraging. He's talking about some truth. Maybe there's some holes in his argument. Certainly, one thing that we just looked at in terms of, you know, it's not always about our integrity and our righteousness. And here he appeals to his experience, Job 4, verse 8. He says, according to what I've seen, those who plow iniquity, 4, 8, and those who sow trouble, harvest it. Now, this is a common image of sowing and reaping. You plow the soil, you get it ready. You sow whatever seed you're going to sow, let's say corn or something else, and you harvest it. If you sowed corn, you're not going to harvest barley. Whatever you sow, you will Reap. reap. Well, that's even quoted in Galatians 6. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, he will also reap. Is that generally true? Yes, it is. It's a principle in Scripture. You plow iniquity. Look, if you If you are living a life of sin right now and you go on in unrepentant sin, you are sowing seeds into your life that are going to come back to bite you. There's going to be natural consequences in your life, right? The law of sowing and reaping can bring natural consequences. But there's also supernatural consequences. God is patient with us, but at some point God will say enough is enough. By the breath of God, they, he's talking about the wicked, verse 9, perish. The blast of his anger, God's anger, they come to an end. Eliphaz says, my experience is if you sow to the flesh, you'll reap of the flesh. If you sow to the spirit, you're going to reap a harvest. So, Job, this is how it works. You prepare the soil. You, You reap what you sow. But life is not always perfectly that way, right? Sometimes something happens to you and you didn't do anything. For example, maybe you were out at the market and someone came and you were in the wrong place at the wrong time and they held you up with a gun and stole your wallet and your money. Do you spend the next two weeks going, I don't know what I did. I don't know what I've been sewing to that I was held up at the liquor store. No, we are in a fallen world. And sometimes bad things just happen because the world is broken. And not everything has a simple answer. Some years ago, one of our elders, Scott Arnold, got brain cancer. He was one of the most beautiful, godly men I've ever met along life's journey. They were, he was diagnosed with this, and the doctor said, they said, it's, it's, it's terminal, you're going to die. They said the best cases, even when we do a surgery, is people live about three years. Do you want the surgery? All it can do is stay the cancer for a little bit, but it's going to come back. Scott goes to the surgery, he, uh, they said, you may not be able to talk after it. He's talking, encouraging the church. But he ended up perishing from that cancer. He, I think he lived five years. And at the end, he was having terrible headaches, and he was in a lot of pain. And, and I know his heart was broken because he wanted to stay here with his family. I know his wife was broken. And I remember his wife, Cherry, said one time, you know, Pastor Michael, I have... I'm not trying to figure out why Scott got cancer. We, are, we live in a fallen world. And I'm not going to do that. I'm, we're just going to lean into God as best we can at this time. I'm not going to try to figure out the why question. So one writer says, Although Eliphaz is not making a direct allusion to the losses Job suffered when a gust of wind collapsed the house in which his sons were feasting, It is obvious that he would interpret the tragedy as a direct punishment of God. The breath of God in verse 9. The blast of his anger. Job might be thinking, man, that's what happened. A great wind hit that house where my kids were feasting and they perished. Is Eliphaz implying that there was wrongdoing? The roaring of the lion. Here's a metaphor. The voice of the fierce lion. Five different descriptions of lions. The teeth of the young lions at different stages of development, are broken. The lion perishes for lack of prey, and the whelps of the lioness are scattered. Here's an image. A lion is going to go out to hunt. His main weapon is his teeth to get his prey. But what if his teeth are broken? Then with broken teeth, he can't kill his prey, and he can't feed his young and Psalm 58.6 uh, says, O oh God, shatter their teeth in their mouth. Break out the fangs of the young lions, O oh Lord. What Eliphaz is trying to say is that we live, Job, in, an, in a universe of moral order. Things happen. They're sowing and reaping. There's judgment on the wicked. The lion is a picture of the wicked, and God breaks their teeth, and that's why they perish. The final judgment belongs to God, yes, but the final judgment will come in at the end of the age. That's when the full harvest will come in. Amen? That's Matthew 13. Right now, does everybody get what they deserve the moment they do something wrong? No. Do some people get away with murder? Yes. Yes. But at the end of the age, when the final harvest comes in, ain't nobody getting away with anything. And that's what we have to hold on to in a world that oftentimes has all kinds of tragedies. When we see a country where they are killing Christians or they're trying to wipe out an entire civilization because of hate, Or uh, trying to do a power grab. We say, oh Lord, where are you? What's going to happen? And you know what God says? Just wait. Because one day all people, the the small and the great, the rich and the poor are going to stand before me. And the books are going to be open. And I'm going to separate the sheep from the goats. You can take it to the bank, brothers and sisters. The day of judgment, God will be just. And that's why we desperately need the Lord Jesus Christ. We need his mercy. We need his sacrifice at the cross. Now, from what Eliphaz wants to be in a well-ordered universe, which there are general moral laws certainly that do work, he appeals to a weird experience he has. We're winding down. Now, a word was brought to me stealthily, 12, and my ear received a whisper of it. Amid disquieting thoughts from the visions of the night, when deep sleep falls on men, dread came upon me, and trembling made all my bones shake. Then a spirit passed or glided by my face. The hair of my flesh bristled up. It stood still, did the spirit, but I could not discern its appearance, 16. A form was before my eyes. There was silence. Then I heard a voice. (laughs) What Eliphaz now appeals to after the moral laws of wisdom and the way the universe works is to a personal experience. He was terrified and trembling as some sort of spirit passed before him and the hair on his body stood up on end. He was freaked out. This is the stuff of horror movies. Have you ever watched a movie and there's a weird scene in the movie? uh, One of those wee, wee. Scenes, and the hair on your arm stands up, and you're like, man, this is freaky. Well, this is what happened to Eliphaz. Maybe you've had an experience like this, and we have to be careful with experiences, but sometimes in twilight sleep or at night we've had a dream, and sometimes that dream seemed very real. And some people have had experiences where they thought something was in their room, and maybe a dark presence, and what is going on with Eliphaz's example? He says, this spirit glided by my hair standing up. It made my skin crawl. And then the spirit spoke. Are you all tuned in? What did it say, Eliphaz? What did it say? It said this. Can mankind be just before God? It whispered, "Can can a man be pure before his maker? That's what the spirit said? This weird situation that happened to Eliphaz? There's some different versions here. One option is NIV, New King James, can a mortal man be more righteous than God? Scholars are not sure the best way to translate this. Can a man be more pure than his maker? Or should it be, can a man be pure before his maker? There are implications to both sides. If a man, can a man be pure before his maker? Well, we know the answer. The only way to be pure before your maker is to be in Jesus Christ. That's why Jesus came. If you be saved any other way, pray tell, why did Jesus come? Why did he die on the cross if you can be good enough to make it to heaven on your own? But maybe the other translation is consistent with the problem. Can a mortal man be more right than God? Do you think Eliphaz is implying that Job is saying... I didn't do anything wrong. And that he has a legitimate argument with God. Well, in one sense, Job didn't do anything wrong, but he's still a human and he's still frail. Or this option. One writer says, but it is also the Satan's answer. The substance of the Satan's challenge in chapters 1 and 2 was that no human being on earth is genuinely right with God. And so... Quite unwittingly, says this writer, no doubt, and meaning well, Eliphaz becomes a spokesman for Satan, where he is saying, ah, there's nobody that can be right in God's sight. Well, Job was certainly a good man, but the point I think that we need to take out of this is that the only way we're going to be right in God's sight is to be in Christ, because God even knows my thoughts. Just when I think I'm doing good, right? Then I realize that God knows my thoughts. See, God says Eliphaz, and remember, we're getting the opinion of man, so we have to be careful with the book of Job in this sense. He says, he, God, puts no trust even in his servants, and against his angels he charges error. I'm not sure where he gets that unless he's speaking of fallen angels, but it does say his angels there. How much more those who dwell in houses of clay? whose foundation is in the dust, who are crushed before the moth. Apparently, there's a type of moth that can devastate a clay house by devouring the straw of the bricks. How many of you have ever had those pantry moths show up at your house? Anybody? Those things are wicked because they somehow get inside your pasta, and that is a terrible crime against all Italians. And all of humanity, right? And I guess they lay their eggs and somehow they can, they move with some of the grains and stuff. And that's why the eggs can hatch in your pantry. And all of a sudden the moths are in your pantry. And you're like, how did they get here? And one thing I've learned about those moths, you barely touch them and they explode. <laughs> and they just leave a trail of darkness everywhere. There's two options here. One that the moth eats the straw and the house of clay can go down or one the pantry moth <laughs> becomes a picture sometimes of our lives. We think we're doing so great between morning and evening 20 we we wake up things are good and all of a sudden between breakfast and dinner our life is a shambles. That's Job, broken in pieces. He's a clay pot, scraping himself with clay. He says unobserved they perish forever is not their tent cord plucked up with them. They die. Yet without wisdom, as we wind down, I think of people who went to work on 9-11, woke up, maybe gave their wife a kiss or their husband, ran off to work, went up into a building, doing their normal routine, getting a cup of coffee, talking to some coworkers, sending an email or two, and you turn around and a plane's coming towards your building. And life is over. And sadly, anyone in that situation who doesn't know the Lord and doesn't repent in those moments of their sin and trust in Jesus Christ, they perish but in the ultimate sense. See, this is the way life can be. Life is but a vapor here today, gone tomorrow. Oftentimes our lives are depicted as clay pots. We are simply jars of clay but the glory of the gospel comes into this jar of clay and can change it around and manifest the glory of God. The silver cord sometimes snaps and life ends. Death comes to us and our bodies are described often as tense, subject to the wind, subject to frailty. That's why we need to know the God who made us because this life it's not going to last forever. And Eliphaz has said some good things, some encouraging things, maybe some theologically questionable things that we have to make sure we examine properly. But he does say something that's important at the end of the chapter. He said, "Life can be like a tent cord plucked up. When a tent is taut, it's it's set up well. The moment you pull that cord, the tent what? It collapses." And so our life is depicted as a tent. One day we're going to pull up the stakes and move on to another location. This body is a tent. The question is not if it's going to happen. The question is, do you know where you're going when it happens? And in 2 Corinthians 5, the famous chapter about the tent, Paul says to be absent from the tent, or the body, is to be where? Where? At home with the Lord. Now, we have a brother, Bill Brock, who has been in the hospital and uh, he needs a miracle, a major miracle. Or he's going to go home to be with the Lord. But you know what we know about Bill Brock tonight? We know exactly where Bill is going. Because if the Lord takes Bill home to be absent from that body, he will be at home with the Lord. And I ask you tonight, do you know the Lord? I know this room is filled with Christians, but you may be here tonight and maybe you've not met Jesus. And I'm not here to scare you into the kingdom, but I am here to tell you the truth, that you have one life. And living it for the glory of God is not just about a, an escape hatch, a get-out-of-hell-free card. It, the gospel does save you from the wrath to come, But don't you want to live your life for your creator? Don't you want to make your life count for eternity? Don't you want to do something that's actually going to impact others for the glory of the one who died for you? Do you want to just get in by the hair of your chinny chin chin or the skin of your teeth? Or do you want to get in and say, Lord, this is what I offer to you. Thank you. It's nothing compared to what you did for me. But I offer it back to you. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the speech of Eliphaz that we can uh, study together. There's some encouragement, some things that we can learn about communication, some good aspects, some moral truths, biblical principles, no doubt. Then there's some other things that we have to be really careful with, Lord. Even the experience that Eliphaz had with some sort of spirit, we don't know what that spirit was. We don't know who was speaking. Yes, truth came out there, but we just want to be wise, Lord, on how we navigate this life you've given us, and we want to do it well. And when we minister to other people, we need great wisdom, Lord, and we need our own medicine when we've been able to give it out to others. Help us, Lord, to receive it for ourselves, To know grace is true for us too. The medicine of the, the gospel is true for us. The goodness of God, his love that never fails is true for us. That when we make a mistake, he will extend his grace to us if we just come back home. Keep your head and heart bowed. If you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, if you're a backslidden Christian, a prodigal, would you cry out to the Lord? Don't let this moment pass you by. Something like this, Lord Jesus, pray it if it's you. I'm going to get my right life, my, my life right with you tonight. I repent of my sin, and I receive you as my Lord, my Savior, my King, my God, my friend. Please, Lord, fill my life with your presence. I turn away from my sin. I put my trust in you. Your death on the cross, your resurrection from the dead. Thank you for entering into my pain. Thank you for loving me the way that you do. Keep praying. Lord, I give you my burden tonight. I cannot bear it alone. I cast my care to you because you care for me. Would you carry my burden? Would you help me to even give you the things that, if I've stepped into a situation and I've carried somebody else's burden, help me give you that as well. You're big enough. It's your church. It's your world. Your universe. You made us. You love us. We are fearfully and wonderfully made. And we're gonna trust you with our lives If you loved us enough to die on that cross, then we know you love us enough to bring us all the way home.